Welcome to another episode of the Heart-Centered Therapist Podcast. I'm Cindy Gozanski, your host. Today, I'm bringing you a really important episode. If you are someone living with chronic illness or someone in your immediate circle has chronic illness or a disability, this episode is for you. My guest today, Amanda Pratt, is going to share so vulnerably about her own personal journey with chronic illness, how it's impacted her life, changed her perspective, and impacted her work. We talk about grief, social stigma, medical trauma, having self-compassion, and coping strategies. But more than that, Amanda gives us a glimpse into the lived experience of someone with chronic illness as well as what it's like to work with individuals with chronic illness. Her energy is amazing, and I can't wait for you to meet her and experience her energy, and most of all, learn from her. So let's get right to the episode. Welcome to the Heart-Centered Therapist Podcast, the podcast created for you, the therapist who leads with your heart and loves serving your clients. I'm Cindy Gozanski, your host. I know that being a heart-centered therapist is immensely rewarding and powerful and intensely challenging and difficult. We're on this journey together. My mission is to help you continue loving your work as a therapist, surviving being a therapist, and feeling more connected as a therapist. Welcome everyone to another episode of the Heart-Centered Therapist Podcast. I'm excited today to bring you a special guest. Her name is Amanda Pratt. She's a licensed clinical social worker with a telehealth-based private practice in St. Petersburg, Florida, also licensed in Alabama and Michigan. And the focus of her practice is serving adults living with chronic health challenges. Amanda is a graduate of the University of Michigan School of Social Work Master's Program and her bachelor's degree is in psychology from Central Michigan University. While in graduate school, she became very rapidly ill, beginning her own chronic illness journey that not only changed her life, but changed her clinical perspective. We're gonna hear more about this. Amanda's philosophy and clinical practice is client-centered, strengths-based, and focused on skill building to support the client's goals towards self-management. On this journey, she has pursued a diverse range of training to support clients, such as certification as a Tai Chi instructor, certified mental health integrative medicine provider, and chronic disease self-management program facilitator. She's trained in CBT for chronic medical conditions, brain spotting, DBT, ACT, polyvagal theory, compassion-based therapy, and is trauma-informed. She speaks locally and nationally at health conferences and support groups on topics related to chronic illness. And she's so much more than that. We're meeting today and she is also sitting in her office and also her art studio. So I'm learning so much about Amanda in just a few minutes. I'd like to just say welcome. Thank you so much for being here, Amanda. Thanks for having me. I'm excited. Yeah, me too. So we're just going to dive right in. You have shared so vulnerably with me that chronic illness really impacted your journey. And it started as a young person for you. You're still young, but certainly hit as a young person while you were pursuing your graduate studies. And maybe you can share a little about your journey and how it impacted your career path. Yeah, I actually started out my career as a youth advocate and a school social worker and someone who did volunteer work nationally and internationally with AmeriCorps and Peace Corps. So I had a totally different focus when I started social work. My focus in my master's program was working with youth and families. And so my goal was to be a school social worker and to be able to um, work with kids who were disenfranchised and needed more support than they had access to. So I had already been doing that for years. Actually, previous to my master's program, I was in Peace Corps and I was in a country called Namibia doing work with 
Orphans and Vulnerable Children uh, was the name of the program. Uh, and it was to educate on AIDS and other health related things. So I was considered a health extension volunteer. I had only been in the country for two months and I got sick and I was sick there for like two months after that. And they couldn't figure out what was wrong. And so what Peace Corps does is they kind of just say, we can't figure it out. And they do something called medical separation. So they med sep you back to the States and Mm. you're on your own. And um, it was really confusing, very emotional because I'd put so much work into it. It completely changed my plans that I had for my life at the time. So I was left going, what am I going to do now? And someone that I had worked with in my undergraduate program, a professor actually you know, encouraged me to become a social worker. He said, whether you like to believe it or not, what you're doing is social work. I had a negative view of social work and I was like, I don't know if I want to do that. (laughs) And so I kind of did more research. I had no idea you could be a therapist and all these things. So I was like, okay, let me go ahead and go to school for social work because that would give me a path. And, and so I pursued that. Well, after I got back to the States, I I felt better for a little bit because I think the stress of living in another country, you know, had gone down. And so I had a little bit of a period where I was like, okay, I think I'm feeling better. But then as soon as I started my graduate program, I got so sick so fast. And thankfully at that time, because I was a grad student, I was granted access to student health care as part of my tuition. And I just happened to get matched with a doctor who was really validating. And right away, he said, you, I think, have some kind of autoimmune disease. You're having actually multiple things going on. And so right away, I was diagnosed with um, fibromyalgia, hypothyroidism, and he did testing for lupus. And he said, I'm not a rheumatologist and I'd prefer for you to get diagnosed by one, but you have like all of the signs of lupus. Um, Oh my goodness. So as a young person, yeah, you're like, what is going on? And I was so confused and I did what I think a lot of young people do, which is don't talk about it, pretend it's not real. And if I work out and change how I'm eating, it'll probably go away. <laughs> so I just kept pushing myself, went to the gym every day, completely changed my diet, which wasn't that bad, but you know, mm-hmm. it, it can always be more strict. So I was like, maybe if I get more strict. And so I did all of this, I guess what I now know is bartering with myself to try and change it. And it didn't change and it just continued to get worse. And so my, I honestly don't know how I made it through grad school. I remember being in classes where the professor was lecturing and I, I had no idea what they were saying. It was like, I knew they were talking, but I couldn't process or comprehend. My brain fog was so bad and it was really confusing and upsetting. I also didn't know you know, that there were things like disability. I was just going to say, right. I had no idea about any of that, but I think the reason I made it through was because I had a couple professors that I trusted that I shared this with eventually after I was like, okay, this is going to really affect your performance if you don't tell someone. And they did help me and accommodate me within their own classes. And that I think is what got me through. And the rest of it was just I don't even know, honestly, but I managed to graduate and then I moved down to Florida and I thought, well, Mm. I'll continue with my school social work track, get a job and get insurance and then I'll get it all figured out, you know? Right. Well, I got a job as a school social worker and started working that, you know, uh, 40 hour, but like expected more than 40 hour a week job. Of course. (laughs) Yeah. Didn't tell anyone, didn't disclose that I had anything health related going on, partly because I thought it will probably go away, you know? Mm, Right, right. And uh, it didn't, and it got worse, and it significantly impacted my ability to work. And so I finally got to a point where I was like, okay, I'm going to have to tell my supervisor. 
And so I did. And she, you know, taught me about accommodations and I did my own research on it, which a resource I often share is called uh, askjan.org. It's Oh, yes. The Job Accommodations Network. And so I got some great guidance from them and I asked for accommodations. And as we know, asking for accommodations doesn't guarantee that you're going to get what you need. And it also doesn't guarantee that people are going to respond well to that. So through experience, um, you've become expert in this. Yes. Yes. So I ended up bouncing around to different schools for a few years, pushing myself through this, still unsure, still not really getting appropriate medical care treatments, Mm. not really working that well. Um, And different leaders at the different schools that I was in really weren't accepting of my accommodations and sometimes did really unethical things in the, in light of them. And so at your workplaces at the places. Yeah. And, you know, it's kind of all a blur because I also was not really able to advocate for myself because of how sick I was. And so Mm. that's the other side of it is had I felt better, I probably would have been able to stick up for myself more. And so eventually after three years, almost four years of this, I had to make the difficult decision to quit, to leave. And they, they offered me a year of disability leave, which was kind of like a trial and Mm -hmm. gave me the option to come back if I wanted to. And so I did the year of disability leave and then ultimately decided not to go back. That journey is what led to me starting my practice and completely changing my client focus, Mm -hmm. uh, because I so did not get what my needs met, you know, even looking for therapists to support me during this because I was so confused and it just seemed like people didn't really know. And the concept of chronic illness was not like, um, at least I felt it wasn't well understood. It was like the focus needed to be on mental illness, which certainly I was going through a lot of that at the time, but it just felt like it was missing something. And so kind of through all that, I decided like, Hey, this needs to be something that, you know, is available in therapy. And so that's kind of where I started offering it myself. Yeah. So it it really arose from your personal journey and experiences and the the unmet needs that you experienced going through this as an individual, a patient at times, an employee, all of those things. Mm-hmm. Thank you, Amanda, for sharing this this story. And before we jump to like what you created, I mean, there's there's just so much that you shared about your journey and the experiences. And first off, like to be in Namibia, a foreign country as a young woman, and then get so desperately ill and not know, and then have to have that medical separation. I mean, there's so much devastation and, you know, disappointment and grief around that. I'm sure then coming back, like all of the things you went through just sound like a lot of trials while you were mm-hmm. while you were sick, emotional experiences as well as the physical unexplained experiences and and symptoms. Yeah, and you know it's interesting. I just recently got trained in brain spotting, which I really love for the emotional side of things. And as you know, we therapists love to do therapy on ourselves when we're in right. training. So we always have to try everything that we're going to be doing on clients. So in my own brain spotting, one of the things that I chose as an issue was that kind of ambiguity around, you know, being in the Peace Corps and then coming back and really not knowing what was going on for so long. And one of the things that came up in the brain spotting session for me was that I felt really alone there in that experience because you're already kind of isolated as a volunteer. You all are sent to your own villages where you work. But within that, you know, I had all these different medical experiences. Like I was having neurological issues. And one day I showed up to the PCMO, which stands for Peace Corps Medical Office. And my pupils were dilated. And they thought that I was on drugs and they didn't believe me and they made me get drug tested. And I was not, I'm um, not a person who does drugs. So 
that was kind of traumatic. And then they were like, well, if she's not on drugs, then there's something wrong with her neurologically. And they made me do all of these, like, I can't remember exactly what it was, but there was one experience where I had to have this injection while also getting a scan of some sort. And the person doing the injection was really rough and it caused a lot of pain. And, you know, people there speak another language that's not your own primary language. So there was a lot of experiences wrapped up in that where I actually went through testing and doctor after doctor for two months before they sent me home. And that I was alone. Like I was staying in a place by myself. I was being transported by myself. And so it was a lonely experience. And so that piece emotionally for me, I think I carried with me still, and there's a lot of it I carry with me still. And that's kind of brings up the concept of medical trauma, medical trauma. Yes. I was just going to say, yeah. And even grief, you know, Mm -hmm. uh, grieving the loss of your independence or grieving the loss of a career that you wished that you could have had, but also within that, which I hadn't really mentioned is it's something I call it the gift that keeps on giving kind of <laughs> jokingly because over the past 10 years, even since that diagnosis, I found out even at the beginning of the pandemic that I actually had Lyme disease. And one of the things that had happened while I was there was I had woke up in the middle of the night and found this tick under my back. And there's a lot of like stray dogs that run around in that country. Oh, um, wow. And so that part wasn't investigated. There was a lot of not being believed in that me asking for testing and them saying, no, you probably don't have that. And so it's even more complicated than I can even share today. And there's a lot more details and nuances to that. But I think that is another thing people can identify with is there's often so much more context around each of our individual experiences that people don't see or don't hear about. And it, it really impacts how we're received or people's assumptions that they make, or even society and how they treat us. And that leads to a lot of other complicated things in chronic illness. Oh, a hundred percent. I, I really want to underscore what you said so that the listener gets that, you know, that the the client or the patient's experience is so much more complex than Mm -hmm. most people on the outside realize, even sometimes doctors realize, I mean, this is, this is part of what you're saying. And, you know, I'm just, I'm really excited to have this conversation because I don't know if I shared before, but my background when I was studying in my grad program was rehabilitation counseling as well as clinical mental health counseling. And I also got my certified rehabilitation counselor license. And so I'm super, I'm super passionate also about understanding people's lived experiences with disabilities and chronic conditions and the intense stigma and under service that goes along with that. So, um, you know, just having you on and sharing your experience of somebody who probably had some resources and still experienced tremendous medical trauma, tremendous doubt by medical professionals, lack of supports. You're at one of the best schools and still nobody was sharing about like going to disability services to get accommodations. So, you know, I think this is a really important conversation we're having for so many people to understand that their clients, family members, friends could be experiencing similar things with other chronic illnesses and conditions. And that notion of stigma that's so rarely talked about, you know, and the different types of trauma and lack of dignity and lack of respect that a patient or an individual may experience during their evaluations, their testing processes, the whole thing. Yeah. So when I started my practice, it really, like I said, came out of that experience of not being believed of sometimes losing friends, sometimes having people say really insensitive things. And I knew I felt some type of way about it, but I was like, what is behind this? And so as I started my practice, I realized there's not even a lot of resources out there for a therapist trying to learn about how to support someone with chronic illness. 
So I read and I read and I read medical research and behavioral research and kind of pulled together everything I knew from my own experience and had to kind of create my own resources, my own strategies that I would offer clients to kind of highlight the major topics and the social inequalities, you know, because as a social worker, that's kind of one of the things that we do is we consider the whole system, the world, how all of these things trickle down to the individual person. And so actually using my social work framework and training helped me support myself. Mm -hmm. And then that's kind of how I started offering different things in my practice and it's evolved over time. Um, But the concept of stigma, I think is huge, you know, and one of the things that I realized was because I was sick in my Mm twenties, I instantly like lost most of my friends at the time. And that was a big thing that I didn't really understand because they just didn't get it. They just didn't get like, or believe you or it's easy to find other friends who can go out and do things when, you know, then, then hanging around or accommodating a friend who's sick, I think. And I think if you have no frame of reference for that, I get it. And it's really damaging to the person who is living with chronic illness because it makes them more isolated and isolation is really harmful. There's some inherent isolation that comes with chronic illness, but having social supports that are quality social supports that provide affirmative support are really important, both instrumentally and emotionally. If there's any family and friends here listening that have someone in their life with chronic illness, I can't stress that enough is just approaching them with non-judgment because it, it could be really helpful for them. Absolutely. Um, Absolutely. And, and it's such an important point and, and even echoing that if you get fortunate enough to have those supports and to establish friends who can be there for you and still do fun things and can be those quality friends that could also make it really hard to make any changes. Like we have to also understand that this is the place where you land because your friends are here Mm -hmm. and that, you know, that can be really huge for somebody when there's so much pressure sometimes again, Maybe we'll talk about the stigmas, but pressures of how come you're not doing this or how come you're not doing that? Well, look, here is where my supports are. Yeah, it's the the stigma is such a huge thing. And a lot of it is social and cultural stigma. And so it comes from essentially feeling like we're being judged by people or feeling as though we're not going to be accepted because of this thing that society sees as a flaw or a weakness or what have you. It can also come from people not believing you. That's a huge thing in chronic illness. And it happens not only among family and friends, but it happens sometimes from medical providers. Right. I one time had a recommendation for a provider and waited for this appointment and got there. And I had all these hopes for how they were going to help me. And I got in there and he took one look at my blood work and, and everything. And he said, no, you're not sick. And I just kind of sat there processing things. And I was like, but I feel sick, you know? And Mm -hmm. He actually got up, walked out of the room, left the door open and said, I have more serious patients to get to. And so like that kind of thing sticks with you, you know, and friends and family can do that to us too, in different ways. It is so emotionally hurtful because part of why it's so hurtful and damaging is because we are in a state of vulnerability when we're sick. I think anybody now, like there's a widespread understanding, probably more so than usual right now because of the pandemic. When people get COVID, they're like some people anyways, who get it in a big way. Wow. I've never been so sick in my life. And I might say, well, imagine feeling that sick for years and years. The brain fog, the exhaustion, the pain. Yeah. 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 And it's, I think 
you know, it is easier for people to believe something when they've experienced it themselves. That's Mm -hmm. a human thing, but we really have to do some more work to challenge ourselves to step outside of our own experience. If we haven't experienced that, and again, place the other person as the expert, if they're telling you it's true, believe them. It's a simple thing, but so powerful, right? That the patient really is the expert. And, you know, Amanda, I will, will share this, that I have a dear, dear friend with a very serious disability and often I'll accompany him to his medical appointments just because he's experienced so much of that stigma that you describe. And sometimes it just can be helpful to have a support or an extra person there. Maybe it gives the doctor a different way of interacting, but whatever it's, you know, sometimes it's just better than a person going there by themselves Mm -hmm. and not everybody can do that. And I can't always even be there, which is hard, but I think that's so important to have to have an advocate because navigating that medical world is tricky enough. And especially if you're struggling with chronic conditions. Yeah. And I also have to highlight too, that those experiences, I mean, we're talking about them as white women and those experiences are even worse for people of color, for Mm -hmm for trans people, for people who, you know, fall anywhere under the umbrella of not normative or, or what have you. So I think that is another thing to remember that even though our experiences are challenging and those things happen to us, they happen even worse to people in other situations. And there's also, you know, people in bigger bodies get uh, discriminated against because of their weight and have everything blamed on their weight. It happens in so many different ways that can actually be even worse than the things that we've experienced. Mm, Right. And so some of these points you're making are examples of actual stigma. You, you really raise a good distinction between actual stigma and anticipated stigma. And if you could explain a little what anticipated stigma is, because I think not everyone understands that. Yeah. So I had written a blog post, which I think you read back in 2019 during a time when I had, this was right before I found out I had Lyme disease. My nervous system had kind Mm. of completely shut down. I wasn't no longer able to stand up out of bed to stand and take a shower. I had POTS and orthostatic hypotension in a really big way. Mm. And so uh, I, it happened so rapidly. I had to use a walker, you know, a rollator device Mm -hmm. where it has a seat on it in order to like leave the house and go do anything, go to my doctor's appointments, because I would always feel like I was going to pass out. Right. So you couldn't predict that's part of the pots. You can't predict when that's going to happen. Yeah. And, and it can it can happen really suddenly. So yeah, it gets really tricky. And that was one of my ways that I knew I could accommodate myself mm-hmm. if I was willing to do it. And so one of the things that I wrote about in that blog post was that it took a lot emotionally for me to be able to do that. And I had to really sit and think about like, where is this coming from? And it really was the anticipated stigma of being a young person using a mobility device. I had already gotten comments being in doctor's offices, like rheumatologists, where I'm the youngest person in the right. world. And yeah. even doctors had said to me, you're too young to have these, you know, x-rays and you're too young to have these pains that you're having as if chronic illness discriminates, you know? Right. And even that is a form of stigma from the doctors. Yes. Yeah. Yes. And so anticipated stigma is when we kind of worry about what is it going to mean for me if I use this? What are people going to say? This comes up a lot with using walkers for people with POTS specifically Mm -hmm. because about half of people with POTS are teens. A lot of teenagers get 
autonomic dysfunction in this way. And so teenagers will have to use walkers, you know, and describe please uh, the, the POTS. What is that? What does that stand for? Sorry, POTS, it stands for postural orthostatic tachycardia syndrome. It's Mm -hmm. a form of dysautonomia, which is an autonomic nervous system dysfunction. And so what that means is when you stand up, when you're in a certain position, an upright position, your uh, your blood circulation doesn't work the way it's supposed to. So your blood isn't pumping appropriately. Your heart rate increases to compensate for that. If you have orthostatic hypotension, your right. blood pressure drops when you stand up. So for me, I was having a blood pressure drop when standing up and my heart rate was increasing even more than what would be, um, what the OH would be responsible for. So I was having heart rate increases of a hundred beats, just standing up. I'd go from 70 beats a minute to 170, just standing up from the couch. Gosh. Right. So So the, the risk of passing out, uh, falling, anything. Fall risk is the biggest thing with that. Mm -hmm. And so for me, I felt safer using that, but also there's the stigma, the anticipated stigma, which means nobody probably has said anything to me about that yet, but I know so widely that it happens that I am now really concerned that it's going to happen to me. And I am now worried about using that device because of it. Right. Right. Um, The same thing happens with handicap placards. A lot of people will be afraid to use a handicap placard because they don't fit the box that people tend to think a disabled person should look like. And so lots of people who are disabled don't use walkers, don't use wheelchairs, and they're still disabled. A lot of people who are disabled are young people. And so on the outside, they can look what someone else would think is totally fine but they have some kind of functional limitation and it's what we would consider an invisible disability or an invisible illness, meaning it's not readily visible to someone else and people judge based on what they don't see. Yeah. And so exactly. They'll leave notes on your car. Sometimes they come up and they aggressively verbally attack you. Some people have had to call the police. I mean, this Mm, happens in the chronic illness and disability community. And so there's anticipated stigma where, um, and I did some research on this and there's actually, um, you know, trauma that can happen just thinking about or hearing about someone else having to go through something like that, that prevents you and creates a fear of it happening to yourself. Of course. Um, and yeah. and you would weigh the, the question, should I, you know, should I use the handicapped parking spot and the placard? Or do I think, you know, people are going to judge me this way or treat me this way? Or I just remembered hearing the story of my friend and I don't want to mm-hmm. deal with that, or I don't have the strength to deal with that. You know, going to somehow gut it to make it to the the front door of the store a different way. Yes. Mm -hmm. And in that article I had written, there was a study that was done about chronic pain, that chronic pain, you know, was pretty prevalent in young adults, more prevalent than I think most people know of. It was about 25%. um, And the ages were 18 to 29 And one of the things that they found in that study was that the participants who had suffered chronic pain, the young people in that age group, they had perceived stigma that was so strong that they were more likely to minimize or not share their disability. They were more likely to hide it. They were more likely to self-isolate. They were more likely to push through when they shouldn't have and not really be doing the things they needed to take care of that all because of this perceived stigma and the way friends and family had responded to them, not believing them, et cetera. And so this does have real impacts on people. Um, And and that number is so high, 25% of young adults aged 18 to 29. Like when I saw that number, I was just really surprised. Yeah, it's, and, and even chronic illness in general is a huge portion of our population. And there's, there's a lot of people who have just one, I think it's six in 10, 60% has at least one chronic illness. And 
I think somewhere around 25 to 30% have two or more. I can't remember exactly what that number is, but there's a significant number of our population essentially that already lives with chronic illness. And we're going to be seeing this more and more because of, you know, technology and medical advances. We are living more with these chronic health issues, but the fact that our culture and society responds to them in such a way that we end up fearing that response basically means that that a lot of people living with chronic illness are doing things that are that directly contradict their needs mm-hmm. and that is troubling absolutely and and i think there's also a mistake where people conflate this anticipated stigma with anxiety right because in a way they're two different things the anticipated stigma is is very very real very probable and then when we look at somebody who may also be experiencing anxiety there could be really really good reason for it where it's not just anxiety out of nowhere but it has really really good basis and foundation and you know i can even see somebody being kind of like doubly stigmatized for oh they're really anxious you know and they have this illness when actually there's so much more going on yeah we yeah. we do get anxiety but like you said it's more of a rational based anxiety of that's some, the word anticipating something and that's something that i talk to my clients about like yes this is anxiety and there's a rational anxiety that we we can change we can work with we can do something with there's then rational anxiety which means you do have evidence to support being concerned about this. And that's something that's valid that we really have to look at. And a lot of times it is around these, these things that happen in society, these things that are a result of the way the system is set up. And that is definitely worth noting. Right. So one of the things as you were bringing up the way that so many people with chronic illness will stifle almost their needs because of the stigma and all of these other things we're discussing, and then they don't get met. So I'm sure you work with your clients to to try to help them understand a little bit more about how they might find allies and supports and advocates. At the same time, there's kind of like, I would love for you to debunk the myths a little bit, Amanda, like, because we're told like, oh, tell someone, you know, I, I am more than my disease, or I am not, you know, I am not that. And so this is a tricky question, but here we want people to express their needs, but we also don't want them to just identify as that illness and say they're more than that, but that is like not okay in the community. So help me out a little bit here. I love this question. It is also very complicated. I actually just did an interview with Women's Health Magazine And so there's going to be an article coming out in March, supposedly. Congratulations. Um, Thanks. And it's all about identity and chronic illness. And so we did talk about a lot of stuff like this, but this was one of the things that people would say to me that really irked me. And I was like, I need to understand why to make Mm -hmm. sure I'm not just kind of being reactive, right? Maybe there's something in this. Yeah. So I've said that and and now I'm like, oh, I'm saying the wrong thing. (laughs) Well, I'm glad you asked then, because I have, I think, some good points to make about this and things to consider. One, acceptance is definitely a goal. And I think that the way we conceptualize it is maybe what's in the context and maybe what's missing. Also, within acceptance is identifying with your illness. When people say, you know, you're more than your illness or don't make your illness your whole life or, you know, any flavor of that, that's actually contradictory to what we need to do. There's a lot of research out there that says when you look at identifying with something like a chronic illness, Mm -hmm. that it's actually better for us to identify with our illness than it is to not identify with it. So if someone doesn't identify with their illness, they may be in some form of denial or resistance of it, and they're less likely to take action and what I like to call be in the driver's seat of their own care and their own self-management. If we 
identify with our illness, it means to some degree we are accepting it. But I use the term acceptance as more of a non-resistance of it. I think that there's some, like I wrote an article for the mighty saying that I was never going to accept. Yes, I read that. And so the point that I had with that was that when we say acceptance, there's some kind of implication there that someone offered it and we were like, sure, I'll take this. And that doesn't happen. We're thrust into this with no choice. And I think that has to be recognized and validated. And it doesn't change the fact that that is our reality and how people come to a place where they can recognize that that is their reality and how they do that, I think is unique to everybody. It has to be authentic for them. So the way I do that is not going to be the same way as someone else with, with even the same illness. The biggest thing is that, yes, it has to be part of their identity and the way that we do that matters. And what we do with that also matters. The type of acceptance that we are able to come to also matters. There is another research article that I found that actually broke acceptance into two different forms. One was an active form of acceptance. I like to call it integration because again, the word acceptance, I just don't think fits very well. I love Uh, that integration notion. Yeah, Integration. So it's a way of saying, okay, yes, I have this chronic illness that I didn't want and I still don't like. Mm -hmm. And in order for me to have some kind of functioning day to day and figure out how to live with this there are certain things I'm going to have to do. And in order for me to do that, I've got to accept that this is real and then we can fold it in, right? Um, We can also learn through that how to create new experiences that are better and that can show us that while we have to live with this chronic illness that we didn't ask for, we can find joy in small ways. It might not be the same and we will have to grieve that loss but we can build new experiences that also we find joyful. Beautiful. There's so much grief. (laughs) There's so much grief and it's a cyclical never ending grief, which I can talk about in a minute. But the second form of acceptance that I also like to point out to people to keep an eye out for is called resigning acceptance or simply resignation. And this is where we accept the chronic illness, we might even identify with it, but Mm -hmm. we might become engulfed. And that's another term where our identity is like, there's nothing outside of it, even finding joy. So that is something that happens. um, Becomes more constricting. Yes. Engulfment actually happens not from a person not trying hard enough or not purposefully choosing not to do the things that they need to do. Engulfment tends to happen when our chronic illness is so bad and pervasive and our symptoms are so bad that we have no other choice, but to, for it to be everything in our focus, right? Like people who are in the hospital all the time, people who have feeding tubes, you know, these sorts of things, it's, it's a luxury to be able to not be engulfed in it. Okay. So I want to make that point. And I I noticed you, you say we, and I just, I really acknowledge you for that because one never knows. And sometimes you may be in that engulfed place and other times not. And so there's no separation there. And I I hope my, the listeners understand that we is very important. Yes. Yes. And I've had times where I was engulfed by it and there was there was no way I was going to be able to focus on anything else. And so I've had those periods. And so the resignation acceptance is when we're in those spaces where we recognize our illness is real, but when we look into the future or try to conceptualize any change or really anything relating to it, it's, it's a dark cloud. It is the, there is no future. Nothing good is going to come from this. And it's full of kind of darkness and negativity. And like I said, I can't stress enough that Mm. sometimes that is an appropriate response. Sometimes that is just where we're at emotionally. 
And that's why I, I teach self-compassion for this, because I think if we're able to get back in touch with our own needs, we can sit with that and learn not to judge it and recognize that it is a normal part of this experience, even if our society would judge it. And we can learn how to relate to ourselves differently when we're in that space. And then that is what helps us get back to integration eventually when Mm. we're ready, when it's appropriate for us. Yes. Wow. That's, that's such a beautiful explanation. I think it's going to help so many people when you talk about that, that grief that just keeps coming at you from, from different things, whether it's symptoms or loss of ability to do something or loss of energy or whatever, like that grief can be relentless, Mm -hmm. relentless, just like the, the illnesses. Before we started, you were also sharing a little bit about how there were so many things you used to do being like a person of multi-interests and talents. And you've had to change that a little bit, grieve some of it, but also do things a little differently with, with more intentionality. And maybe this would be a time to, to share about that a little bit. Yeah. Well, I think that there are different experiences with chronic illness. Some people are born with different chronic health issues. Some people have them from very young ages. And so they don't necessarily have a before phase of chronic illness. I do because, you know, I, I did have some health issues as a child and a young adult, but I was also able to explore, you know, my undergraduate education and worked a ton by being on my feet and running around. I was able to pursue creative endeavors. I've done art most of my life in some way, shape or form. I did photography at mm. one time. I mean, I've done a lot of different things. I also was a dancer when I was a kid oh. um, and in college, actually, now that I remember, I was oh. on a top dance team. In, in my under- gosh, that touches my heart though. Cause I oh. imagine like, what's that like to not dance? It's hard. That was probably one of the biggest things that I was upset about was I would get up and try to dance. And when you have something that's postural, you cannot do that. <laughs> so it it is so hard grieving those things that you can no longer do, grieving the idea of maybe something that you had hoped to do in the future. Traveling is another thing. Right. And you were in the Peace Corps. I mean, you yeah. traveled. <laughs> I had so, even in the Peace Corps, I had plans for that like holiday to go travel to all these other countries. And instantly I was not able to do that when I was sent home. And so I really grieved that. And so I think that, you know, when it comes to grief, all of these things are kind of connected, right? One of the ways that we can process through grief, and there's this really great book that came out recently. It's called Healing Your Chronic Illness Grief. It's um, by Wolfelt. I can't remember his first name, Alan Wolfelt. I can't remember. He is a grief kind of expert and he and his daughter wrote the book together. They both have chronic pain, chronic illness to some degree. Mm-hmm. And he gives you like active steps that you can take. It's like a daily book. So you wow, open what a great resource. One day. Yeah. And it gives you something active you can do to process your grief that day. So I use it. Every resource I recommend to clients I've used for myself. So, well, that's the most important thing tried. And, and this is how you get trust, right? You can say, I use it. I do this. And I have lots of examples to draw from, you know? So, so one of the things he talks about is managing your expectations. And so that's been something I always come back to and managing your expectations is basically a way of being flexible with yourself of being flexible with the way you might should on yourself. You know, I should Mm -hmm. be able to do this. Well, what if I wasn't able to do that? What might that look like if I still found a way to enjoy that just differently? Mm -hmm. And I really had to train myself to think outside the box. And that's one of the ways that I've learned to create my new normal. Um, And it's also helped me through that grieving process And like an example of that is just finding small intentional ways to do something related to that thing you used to be able to do. So even though I can't dance, Mm -hmm. I listen to music. 
because that's part of dancing, right? Is right. like having songs that really get you excited and going. Yeah. Um, and so I listen to music. I like watching music videos where mm-hmm. people are dancing in the videos. Sometimes I'll even just imagine myself dancing with them. So it's like a visualization. A visualization, type. right. And you still can experience some joy through that if you really are open to that. And, and I think the more you cultivate those feelings and let yourself feel those feelings, it helps you experience more of them. And once you realize there's different ways that we can access it through a window instead of a door, (laughs) it does start to build those experiences on top of each other. That's thank you for sharing that. That's, that's so great. You know, it, it just really, talks about that integration, right? So you don't have balance. You you can't do the dancing like you used to, but you can enjoy it in these different ways because you've gone through that integration process. Yes. You've opened the window a crack and then maybe another, another little bit. Yeah. And I'm still going through it. I mean, I still have, you know, health challenges. I'm still going in and out of treatments and things like that. And so every new diagnosis I get, I just feel more and more prepared, but I still go through all those normal things like getting upset and feeling some resignation and, you know, um, just all of those feelings, they just don't last as long and they're not Mm. as big as they were at the beginning. So the intensity is dialed down, the more flexible I've been able to become with them, the more of a foundation of self-compassion I have, um, the, the quicker I'm able to move toward integration with that particular health challenge. And so it is always a work in progress. And I, I share with my clients, the expectation is not that these things are never going to come up. And all of a sudden it's not going to be hard for you. It's going to be hard. It's just that you're learning skills for how to approach it that help make it a little bit easier on you emotionally. Yes. Your clients are so lucky to have you as you've been working with your clients in such an intimate way, because I mean, really the type of therapy you do by default has got to be more intimate. You let them know you experience chronic illness as well, chronic conditions, chronic illness, and it's maybe it's more visible. I mean, well, you're doing telehealth, so maybe not Mm -hmm. as much, but you, you could imagine other therapists, it might be more visible depending on how they do their therapy have there been any big surprises for you, like working with other people with disabilities or working just even from this place of, you know what, they do know about me. They know about some of my lived experience and mm-hmm. any surprises even even there? I think, you know, when I first started my practice, because I was starting not only private practice, which I didn't, I came from more of like a community focused background. And so private practice was new for me, but also then the chronic illness piece as a specialty where there wasn't a lot of resources. I really started out with a lot of like the imposter syndrome, oh. uncertainty about myself and my abilities, you know, so there was a lot of that going on at the beginning. Mm-hmm. And so one of the things that, that, and I love my work so much, it's been my favorite job. So that for me is a piece of joy that I've gotten from this experience that I really hold on to. I have been surprised at just like, honestly, I feel really lucky. My clients are awesome. <laughs> and well, I, yeah. part of that is it, it's kind of wrapped up in the whole experience, right? I sometimes will see other therapists who will ask in groups, you know, like, what do I do if I'm really sick? And they're afraid to like cancel on their clients. I yes have had the experience that my clients are like, are you taking care of yourself? Do you need to cancel? Because if we need to stop today's session, we can do that. And I'm like, yeah, you guys are great. So they hold me accountable. Right. Right. Are you practicing what you tell us, Amanda? (laughs) Exactly. And they encourage me to go on vacation. They like, anytime I say, Hey, I'm taking this time off to go on this little trip for myself. They're like, Yes. Good for you. And so I think there's like this reciprocal thing that happens that 
it really, I think, accentuates the power of self-disclosure. And I know I was taught never to self-disclose. Right. We're taught that. The way that I've created my practice, I've kind of had to throw a lot of that out the window to favor what I know people with chronic illness struggle with and what I think is going to help them feel the most safe and comfortable in therapy. Because a lot of times, and this is a whole other conversation, but a lot of times people get told by their doctors as a way of minimizing their illness. It's all in your head. You have a mental illness or it's anxiety or it's depression. You need to find a therapist, not a doctor. All the time, all the time. And so sometimes they come to therapy automatically thinking, my illness isn't going to get validated. My illness isn't going to get recognized. They're not going to have any idea what this is like. And so I really think self-disclosure and also knowing I'm modeling my own self-care practices. And so if I'm, you know, encouraging them to be flexible, I need to be flexible. So I often call myself out in therapy. They call me out, you know, and yeah, I love that you're modeling safe way. And we know we're in it together. And they're like I said, the resources I use, I use them myself. So I'll give examples of like, hey, when this thing came up for me, this is how I used it. I wonder if this would work for you. And we approach everything with curiosity, but it totally hits different when someone who has a similar condition or just has chronic illness in general and says, I struggle too with the same thing. And here's something I tried and let's be curious about this together. Or what have you tried already that's worked? And we're better able to conceptualize that, I think, because we know what it's like to have pain that never goes away and things like that. I also have been surprised, I think, at the fact that working specifically with this population has has really challenged my own beliefs about clinical practice about how we approach mental illness, even diagnosing mental illnesses. There are certain ones that I think are inherently validating and stigmatizing for people with chronic illness. Mm -hmm. And I also try to take great care in having conversations with clients about insurance and their requirements to diagnose for session. And, you know, exactly having a it's a joint conversation about their diagnosis or what they feel is the best fit for them based on, you know, my clinical expertise, but also their experience so that they don't have a negative experience around these diagnoses. And we recognize all the cultural implications of pathologizing chronic illness and all right. involved. Right. In a so, way you can be so much more sensitive to it because you, you have experienced the trauma around chronic illness diagnoses And so you don't want people to have that same experience for mental health diagnoses. Yes. Um, Yeah. Yeah. I just, I love how you also model for your, for your clients, you're modeling how you show up, how you, you're, you manage your self-care, the resources you use. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Wow. It's, I mean, they're, they're so lucky and you're doing so much by giving back and, you know, the surprise and in some ways too, Amanda is like, you really love your job. That's so wonderful. And you didn't even know when, you know, you came back and went to grad school and that wasn't really in the stars. I actually in grad school, I remember having conversations with my, my, um, classmates and some of them saying they were planning on going into private practice and saying, I don't think I could ever go into private practice. That is just not for me. I have learned not to do that anymore because (laughs) so many times I've said, I don't think I'd ever do that. And I've ended up doing it, (laughs) but I love my job. This has probably been my favorite job that I've ever had. And also the fact that, and I've been lucky enough to be able to do this. Not everybody has had access to this, but um, being able to work for myself and, you know, the first couple of years were hard but being able to work for myself and have it grow and get to a place where this supports me has been the best thing for my own chronic illness management, which helps me show up better for my clients. I'm not out there in an agency being given 50 clients on my caseload and having to worry about writing all these reports and all these things. 
um, that will stress me out to the point of burnout. I don't get burnout because I control my own schedule. I have strict boundaries around my schedule and things like that. Um, and that has allowed me to, to self-manage better and also to show up for my clients and be present with them. Right. And even if, if you're not experiencing a chronic illness. I mean, what you, what Amanda just described is, is so critical for all of us that boundaries. are boundaries and, and <laughs> taking care of ourselves. And, and if you are doing a private practice, those are, those are great points. Mm-hmm. Um, or if you're not happy in your job, like really look at what else might be possible, you know, for sure. And I, I imagine from hearing this, there might be some therapists there who have maybe never even, you know, this is kind of like a disability thing, right? You may not have ever met somebody with a similar disability, or maybe there are therapists that hasn't met somebody who's experienced, you know, multi chronic illness conditions, and they might want to reach out to you just, you know, just collegially. So I don't know if you'd be open to that, but I think it might happen very well after this episode. Yeah, I have done actually the past couple of years. I was so sick. I I kind of had to pull back from a lot of like content making and speaking and stuff. But in the past, I would speak at support groups and I recently restarted doing some extra things. And so I did a couple trainings for therapists and I have a, a workshop that I'm opening up for just regular people with chronic illness. Oh yes. Please Um, tell us about that. And we'll definitely link, we're going to link to your website, which is beautiful. Tell me the name again, the the website. So so my practice is imagine life therapy. So the website is imaginelifetherapy.com. And I've got lots of stuff on there, blog posts and everything else. But one of the biggest things I work on with clients that I find clients really love, it teaches them some things and helps them approach coping with whatever their stressors are at any given point differently and more effectively. And so I created a workshop to teach regular people this because I think anyone can use it and it really helps change the way that we approach coping. And so I'm doing an eight week workshop where I teach coping with chronic illness. There's a self inventory that I use with clients. There's a coping guide that I created that has a lot of information about what to look for and what might be helpful or unhelpful with coping responses and then specific coping strategies for different aspects of chronic illness. So that way we're not just kind of throwing things at a board, hoping it'll help us. We're figuring out strategically how to respond, how to focus our efforts that, that we, you know, with our tools that we might have and which ones are at least in my experience have been the most effective for people with chronic illness. That's, that's amazing. And so if, if you want to learn from an expert and this is on telehealth or zoom, right? It's a video course It's on zoom and it starts February 15th. So we'll link to that. I think it would, it's an amazing opportunity and, you know, Amanda, your energy is just so passionate and, and just wanting to help others. Like it just comes through. Yeah. So, so refreshing. I also know you've, you have guest authorship on the mighty and on your blog. So there's so many resources, Mm -hmm. which is, is really great. I hope people will look at that. I always like to end with two questions. Since we're heart-centered therapists, speaking from the heart, what would you say to a client? I would say initially, one of the things that I like to do is just say, you know, this, despite what other people might have told you or what you may have heard in your experience so far, this situation is difficult and it, it sucks. You know, it's hard. It's just as hard as you think it is. And, you know, there's grief involved in it. There's pain, there's deep emotional pain, there's trauma, even though it's not talked about and recognized. And it's important to be heard. It's important to be, to be approached with unconditional regard. And Mm. so if they haven't experienced that yet, then this is the place they're going to get that. And I also 
you know, let them know that there are things despite, you know, if doctors have told them that this is all your mental health, it's not. And mental health issues result from it. So it's a yes. And kind of answer. Yeah. And, and there are things we can do in therapy to help really give them hope. That's tends to sum up my approach. I think. Yeah. That's, that's so great. And speaking from the heart, what would you say to a therapist? Well, I think I would maybe speak to a therapist also living with chronic health issues, because I know yes. there are a lot of helpers out there who also need help. And, and so six and 10 people don't forget everyone. Yes. Six and 10. Yes. And I yeah. think I would say to them to remember when to shift your priority to when you need help and you're the one who's in the position to be helped and when to shift back to helping others. Because I think, well, I know from being someone who's really passionate about helping people and raising awareness and, and really empathizing with the pain and the difficulty of this experience, I also know that we cannot help until we learn to meet our own needs, learn to practice our own self-compassion, you know, so I guess I would just say to make sure to prioritize equal, if not more time for that, for yourself. Mm. We'll have to replay that and listen to that again. Such great advice. Thank you so much, Amanda. This has just been an amazing, amazing opportunity to learn from you to learn so much and to share and to, to understand a little bit of your journey so that we might help others. And also what a great, what a great resource in getting to meet you. Um, so grateful. Thank you so much for being here and spending the time today. And we'll have all the links in the show notes. If people want to sign up for coping with chronic illness course or reach out to you, sure. um, and I would love to have you back on because oh. this topic is so near and dear to my heart. There's so many things we could talk about too. Okay. <laughs> we will do it. We're going to talk okay. more next time. Yeah. It'd be great. So thank you. Thanks for having me. Thank you so much for listening. I hope you enjoyed this episode. And if you did, I invite you to subscribe and leave a rating or review. It really helps other people find this podcast. Be sure to check out the show notes for all the links and resources mentioned. Thanks again, and I'll see you next time.